I think I am lying. How about that? We're, we're glad to see you here tonight, uh, each and every one of you. Um, and during the hot summer, uh, we were blessed with some rain yesterday afternoon. Brother Leland said, Angleton didn't get a drop. So I, I'm sorry for you guys, brother. Uh, if you have enjoyed uh, our summer series through past years, you know that uh, Brother Leland Rogers has been with us in the past. We're always have him happy to have him come back. Uh, he and his wife Irma sitting right right behind. I don't know why they're not sitting together tonight. That's okay. But Brother Leland has been the preacher at the church in Angleton for 25 years. And he's also served, he's had the, the privilege and honor of serving as an elder there also for the last 21 years. So we are really happy to have him tonight to speak to us. Just so you know, uh, Alan is preaching somewhere. I have no idea where Stafford Stafford tonight okay I didn't write that down and and also Eddie I think has gone to preach in Conroe tonight so uh, and and Troy's on vacation so you got me what can I say uh, we want to have a short word of prayer together before Brother Leland uh, takes the podium here and brings our, our lesson tonight our Father and God, we're so thankful for tonight, uh, Father, to live in a country that provides us the freedoms that we enjoy to worship you and enjoy the comforts of this building. Father, we thank you for your blessings upon our family here at Graber Road through the years and upon your church the world over. Tonight, Father, we're mindful of uh, Eddie and Alan and Troy as they're away from us. We pray your blessings upon them and that you would keep them safe as they travel. Father, we're thankful tonight to have Brother Leland with us, uh, he and his wife Irma. We're thankful for the safe trip that they've had from Angleton. Pray that they will uh, have a safe trip back home tonight. We're looking forward to the message he brings us tonight. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus, for his word that guides us, his word to his life that is a pattern for us to live. And Father, we especially thank you for his church that we are allowed to be a part of. We pray, Father, tonight that you will bless us and you will forgive us of those things that we have done in our lives that are amiss, that have missed uh, the target. And, Father, for those things that we have not done, that we should have done, we pray that you will forgive us for those of them. Strengthen us for the days ahead. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good evening. My wife, Irma, and I are delighted to have the privilege and honor to be with you tonight. And we're thankful that you're here. Appreciate your coming so much. We enjoy coming and being with you. And it's been our privilege and honor to accept the gracious invitation by your eldership and those who extended to us, the ministers, to come and be a part of your summer series on different occasions and for several years now. It's been our privilege to do that. We are delighted that you had a rain last night, and if you can pray to the good Lord, obviously you've got better connections to him than we do, so pray that we'll get some in our direction. I will never forget that this story. I came several years ago, and all of us was involved in a drought, and some good brother led the closing prayer here. And he prayed, God, help. And he named every river. He named the creeks. He named everything. God, they need water. We need water. Please send us some water. I went out 
outside to leave that night, it started thundering and actually rained on me before I got out of the city limits. So I'll let you to take that for what it's worth, but that is not a preacher's story. That happened right here in Rosenberg, Texas, and I have never forgotten it. And, uh, and so it was quite an interesting event for us. I read about these three old gentlemen who went to the doctor to get a memory test. And so the doctor brought all three of them in together and he called the first gentleman up and he said, Now, tell me what is three times three? The man thought for a moment and he said, 274. The doctor just shook his head, you know, and said, okay, take your seat. And he said, now about the second gentleman, you come up. And so he talked to him and he said, now tell me what three times three is. And that man thought for a moment and he said, Tuesday. And the doctor really rolled his eyes then and said, you go take your seat as well. And so he invited the third old gentleman up. And he said, all right, now tell me what is three times three? And the man said, nine. And the doctor said, wow, that's wonderful. How did you get that? He said, it's very easy. I took 274 and I subtracted Tuesday from it. Well, I really wanted Alan to be here because I was going to make him be that guy in my story, but I couldn't do it since he wasn't here tonight and kid him a little bit. Please open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Chapter 22 and verse 28 is our text tonight. I don't know how you look at the book of Proverbs when you read it, and I like to suggest sometimes that you look at it from the basis that it helps us in life. Here is a book about life and how do we deal with life. And I think Solomon gives us a lot of good things of how to deal with life. But in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28, Solomon says, Do not remove the ancient landmark which your father have set. I'm going to take this concept tonight, that is the ancient landmark, and let that be the title of my lesson this evening. Notice what Solomon is saying. Do not remove the ancient landmark. Well, let's define these two words. In defining the word ancient from the International Bible Encyclopedia, it says that this word means before time. That's the meaning of this word ancient. Landmark, also being defined from that same source, says that it means boundaries. So then, the ancient landmark was a boundary. It was something that was set in order that the proper divide of the ownership of the property could take place. Property boundaries were something that was seen in the Bible. Open your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. 
And when you come to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, we'll look at verse 14, and we will see God here instructing the people of old that they be mindful of the boundaries of the property. The Bible there says, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now here is a landmark, and I don't want you to move it, he says. Now this is not the only time that we see this concept in Scripture. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 27 now. And we turn over a few chapters, we come to chapter 27, and we look in verse 17. And Moses says there in this reading, Curse is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. We come to find out then that God taught his people that they were not to move the landmarks because it was property boundaries. To move someone's landmark would be like taking something from someone else, stealing from someone, not being honest with those individuals in your relationship. And God has taught his people that they are honest folks and that they are to live by those old boundaries that are there. I highly suspect you have known of some folks, I've at least heard of some people going to court, deciding the boundaries of property, have you not? I remember as a young boy, about 12 or 13, my father took me to some new property we had purchased. He showed me an iron peg that had been driven into the ground. And we walked to another corner of that property, and he showed me another iron peg. And then we walked to another point on that property, and there we had a triangle, so to speak, another iron peg. And he said, this is the boundaries of our property. It has been recorded in the courthouse. It's ours. It belongs to us. We paid for it. So you see, that has always been something that was valuable and important concerning dividing the property of where it ought to be. May I suggest tonight that the ancient landmark concept can have a spiritual application. And I want to talk about that with you this evening. Look in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16. And listen as the prophet of God has some thoughts that I'm confident that you have heard. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your soul. But they said, we will not walk in it. Jeremiah is saying to the people of God that you need to be mindful of the old paths, and you need to walk in those old paths. What's he saying? The old paths, you see, is likened unto the landmarks. 
It was not property boundaries here by no means. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about spiritual boundaries. We're talking about teaching and principles of God's Word. They need to abide by that. And if you don't abide by that, then you will not adhere to the teaching and the will of God. Tonight I want to suggest to you that the removal of ancient landmarks in the Old Testament is quite obvious. I want to take you back to the Old Testament until we have what is called the divided kingdoms. If you are reading in the book of 1 Kings, going into 2 Kings, you will find that God's people come together and there is a dividing of them. Rehoboam had taken over as king, and there are those who were following him. And then those folks didn't like it. A lot of people didn't like it. In fact, then Jeroboam became their king. And people going with Jeroboam were about ten tribes. And those that stayed with Rehoboam, he was in the southern part, and Jeroboam was in the northern part. You had the northern kingdom developing, and you had the southern kingdom developing. And they were the two first kings. You remember that story where the old prophet of God goes to Bethel to cry out against the altar that's been erected there for God's people to worship? Here's the beginning of the divided kingdoms in the Old Testament. Well, let's recognize you have ten tribes that are considered the northern tribes. I want us to read about them. To open your Bible to the book of Jeremiah. And when you come to Jeremiah chapter 31, I want you to listen what this prophet has to say to the northern kingdom. He names one of the ten tribes. And the tribe that he names is Ephraim. And Ephraim is a part of the ten tribes that is in the northern kingdom of God at this time. Look at verse 20, where the Bible says, Jeremiah 31, 20, Is Ephraim my son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him and say the Lord. Now let's go to the next verse. Set up signposts. Make landmarks. Set your heart towards the highway, the way in which you won't turn back. O virgin of Israel, turn back to these your cities. Now go to the next verse, verse 22 as well. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. Here are three verses that Jeremiah speaks to Ephraim, which is obviously a part of the ten tribes that make up the northern tribe. And being a part of the northern tribes, they had turned their back upon God. Because what? They erected their altar. 
They were in Bethel, you see. It started out in Shechem, and it ended up in Bethel where they were worshiping. They were not going back to Jerusalem to worship God anymore, where they were supposed to go. And therefore, here is that divided kingdom and is starting, and ultimately, those ten tribes continue to fall away from God and leave God's landmarks until they are taken away into Assyrian captivity. And ultimately, they do not exist anymore in Scripture. You can't find them. They're lost forever. What happened? They continue to go away from God's landmark. But let's come back now to the divided kingdoms because after they were gone, you still had the southern kingdom. You had Judah, what was approximately two tribes. And they too were struggling spiritually just as Israel had been struggling. So Israel now gone, Judah is all alone, but she is struggling spiritually. And so ultimately, they are taken over by the Babylonians. And they go into Babylonian captivity. And here they are in captivity approximately some 50 years. Why did they go into captivity? Once again, they too was walking away from the landmarks of God. Well, time comes that... The southern kingdom, some of its folks start coming back to Jerusalem. The first man, if you hadn't read about this, look in the book of Ezra. And when you come to the book of Ezra, you will see a man by the name of Zerubbabel. When I was in college, I had a professor to have a son. He was a Bible professor, no doubt the most uh, intelligent man I ever had the privilege to study under. Do you know what he named his son? Zerubbabel. I've often wondered what happened to that boy or how many fights he had because of that name. I hope he survived. But his father put that name on him. You see, Zerubbabel came back first to Jerusalem with 50,000 people. 50,000 Jews followed him back to Jerusalem that they might in reality come back and restore the temple of God in the city of Jerusalem. That was their task. This is what they had to do. And so about half of the book of Ezra tells us this. The next half of Ezra tells us about Ezra coming back to Jerusalem. You now have the temple reconstructed to some point, some, some point, not like it was in his zenith, but at some point it's all right now. And Ezra comes back with the law of God. And Ezra brings about 1,700 people with him. And you see that in the latter part of the book of Ezra. And then you come over to the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah now comes back, and he comes back for the purpose of to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem that it might stand as a defense mechanism to keep the enemy away. Yes, my friends, these folks came back. Why did they come back? Because they had left God's landmark. 
And now they are coming back to establish God's landmark. Jerusalem, the religious center of the world. Jerusalem is the place where God's people were to come and worship at the temple of God and abide by the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. Yes, they have come back for that purpose. Well, that example shows us what can happen when we leave God's landmark. But I would like to suggest to you tonight that Christianity has ancient landmarks. Open your Bible to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, I believe you begin to read the ancient landmark uh, landmarks of Christianity. You come to the book of Acts, we have the Gospels leading up to it, we know the message of that, we know what takes place, we know about Jesus and what he did. And now he has, in chapter 1 of Acts, he ascends back to be with God. And the twelve apostles are in Jerusalem waiting to be endued with power from on high as God had instructed them that Acts 2 might become a reality. And the Bible says in Acts 2 and verse 1, and on the day of Pentecost, what is the day of Pentecost? It's a Jewish feast day, is it not? They have come together that they may worship and honor the Pentecost under the Mosaical Law. And you come to Acts 2 and verse 14, the Bible tells us that Peter stands up with the apostles and he begins to preach. His message is going to be something different. For the very first time, Christianity is going to be proclaimed to the world through the twelve apostles. Is that not what the Lord told him before he ascended? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Be my witness where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here they are starting it right in Jerusalem. They are preaching on this day. And Peter's sermon is recorded for us. And then you come to the latter part of Acts 2 and what do you have? You have Peter saying, by lawless hands, you have crucified the Son of the living God. And they were pricked in their hearts, and they said, Men brethren, what shall we do? The salvation question is asked for the very first time. And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Acts 2.38 Yes, my friends, 3,000 people are ushered into Christianity and are baptized on this day. And the Bible says in Acts 2 and verse 47, and they were added to the same or to the church. Basically what translation you're reading from. And so Christianity and the church was established on this day and from that day forward, Christianity begins to unfold for all mankind. You're in the book of Acts. You're in chapter 2. And you go from Acts chapter 2 through chapter 9 of Acts. What do you have? You have one conversion after another conversion, do you not? You have people obeying. Basically all these people are the Jewish people that are obeying God. Then you come to Acts chapter 10. And we have the conversion of a man by the name of Cornelius. We know he was the first Gentile convert that we have recorded in Scripture. 
And so here is Cornelius being brought into the family of God, the church. And so then, this is a tremendous change. This is different because now Gentiles are coming into the church. We see the Jews have come into the church. Now the Gentiles are coming. And Peter, who preached in Acts 2, is the same preacher who preaches in Acts 10. And he talks about some of the similarities that are going on between them, the apostles, and Cornelius' household. And so he baptized them as well. As you go just a little further, about chapter 13 of Acts, and you have that church called Antioch that sends the apostle Paul and Barnabas out on their missionary journeys. And so here is the continuation of the unfolding of the preaching of the gospel and the rest of the book of Acts to the Gentile world. And so what do we have? We have the Jewish world hearing the message and obeying it. We have the Gentile world hearing it and obeying it as well. And therefore the book of Acts really doesn't come to a close, my friends. It's just a continuation of teaching the message of God. As Paul says, the gospel that has the power to save, that he is not ashamed of in Romans 1 and verse 16. And so here we have establishing through this, may I suggest to us tonight, God's ancient landmarks of Christianity. That's where they are. That's when they were established. That's it. And then do what happens? The book of Romans opens up, does it not? And now we have all of these epistles written by various authors and Paul writing most of them. What's it doing? It's telling people how to live this life that Jesus Christ has called us to. We call it the Christian life, do we not? And so then... Here once again is God's ancient landmarks of how to live for Jesus. And that's the conclusion, basically, of the New Testament. Yes, these ancient landmarks have been established. But do you know what happened during that period of time and in those epistles? Paul gave Timothy a warning. He said, Timothy, I want you to be mindful of something. In first, in second Timothy, rather, chapter four and verse two, some verses that I think that you know well, where Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Now verse three. For the time will come, now listen to this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. What is he warning Timothy about? He's telling Timothy, beware, there will be some people that will walk away from the Lord's ancient landmarks in Christianity. That's what he's telling him. He's warning him of that. In the very first century, the very century in which the church started. So be mindful there will be people that will walk away from it. Now I want to bring this up to tonight. Here we are, August the 12th, 
2015. And tonight, may I suggest to you, religious people have left the ancient landmarks of God in Christianity. Let me illustrate this to you. Number one, the Bible. We know that the Bible, internal evidence, tells us that this is the breath of Almighty God, don't we? That every scripture is inspired of God. It's God's breath. It's right here. I can put my faith in it. I can put my trust in it. It is the sole authority in religious matters. Do you realize tonight that some folks won't agree with you with that? You sit down and start talking to them about the Bible. And it won't be too long that they may say to you, well, Brother Rogers, I feel this way. Or, I think this way. Yes, Brother Rogers, I know the Bible says this, but I think this is okay. You've experienced those kind of times, have you not? So what's happened? What's happened between that individual and myself or you and the person you're talking about? What's happened? You see, that person has taken on subjectivism as they view Scripture. They have accepted the fact that the Bible can be viewed from a subjective perspective. But it can't, my friends. What do we say? It is a sole authority in religious matters. If the sole authority in religious matters, we can't change this standard. Now, we have the prerogative either to do it or not to do it, but we can't change the standard. It's here. This is an objective truth. And you cannot look at an objective truth from a subjective perspective. And so, that is what has come. And people many times do not, do not believe the Bible to really be the Word of God. We have many people in our society who believe God is continuing to tell people and themselves what they are to do, or God is talking to them. You see, I find scripture that tells me that I have been provided with everything that I need. You remember that verse in 2 Timothy? When it talks about every scripture inspired of God, the very next verse tells us what? That we have everything to equip us that we might need as a Christian. We don't need anything else. It's all right here. And so then, we live in a time where people will not accept Scripture, the Bible, being the sole authority in religious matters. And when we leave this book as our authoritative book, we begin to walk away from God's landmark. But let me make a second suggestion to you tonight, and that is the church. We live in a time where people describe the church and talk about the church in various ways. We find religious bodies tonight that will come together on the Lord's Day, but they will never choose to take the Lord's Supper. 
That is their fashion. That is their custom. And that's what they do. We find religious bodies that will not choose to come together on the Lord's Day. They'll come together another time. And therefore, that is their day of worship. And they do not view the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, as the day of worship. So what is happening? When I open the Bible and Jesus says, Upon this rock I'll build my church, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I come to find out that here is a church in Scripture that belongs to Jesus and no one else. And when these churches have come together and decided what they would do and how they will exist, all of them many times are doing things contrary to what the Bible talks about the church is to do. Remember, this is God's landmark in here about the church. And we're called to that landmark as New Testament Christians in the 21st century. And so then, religious people are walking away from God's landmark about the church. May I suggest a third thing? And the third thing tonight is baptism. Do we believe that we need to be baptized to be saved? I find people telling me yes. I find other people telling me no. They do not believe they must be baptized to be saved. Well, as I began to look at God's ancient landmark, the Bible, I have one story after another story, one conversion after another conversion, where people were baptized. Starting in Acts 2, Peter said they were baptized for remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. We can go and look at many different examples and find that they are repeatedly baptized in the first century in order to have remission of sins. Not only that, I find in Romans 6 and verse 4 where the Bible says when we're baptized, we're baptized into the death of Christ. Why do I want to get into the death of Christ? Because it is in Jesus' death that he shed his blood and it is his blood that takes away our sins. That's the only way I can get into the death of Jesus is through baptism. And so we come to realize then, when one would share with us that baptism is not essential to salvation, they have left God's ancient landmark concerning baptism. But a fourth suggestion to you tonight is this. The Christian life. How do we live it? I find it most interesting that people who call themselves the people of God believe they can live any way they want to live as a Christian. They have no whatsoever idea about God saying no to basically anything. If I'm honest... If I'm sincere, if I'm dedicated, if I have these characteristics about me, then what I do, God's going to accept that. Well, I find that interesting. If that is true, let's look at this point. Why would God 
spend most of the New Testament for one thing, basically. When you start reading in the book of Romans and you finish about Revelation, about chapter 3 or 4, just that section of Scripture, which is the most part of the entire New Testament, what is the message in all of that? Is it not the message of how to live for Jesus? That's the message. It's repeatedly. It's the one congregation to another congregation. It's the one individual to another individual. And all is talking about Christian principles and what they are and how I am to abide by these principles in my daily world with the Lord. That's the entire message. You tell me that God takes up that much material of Scripture and is not important how I live as a Christian? I don't believe that. I believe it is important. He wouldn't have so much writings about it that I'm to have a forgiving spirit, that I am to love my neighbor, I'm to love my enemies, and I could go on down the list talking about things, how my life is to be lived on a day-to-day basis to rule and yield a Christian influence that others may see Christ in me. And that's your job as well as Christians. When we fail to live that life, then we fail to abide by God's ancient landmark. Tonight, I want you to carry this question with you home, okay? Do you follow the ancient landmarks of God in your life? May I say it one more time? Do you follow the ancient landmarks of God in your life? Let's talk to the Father. Thank you, Lord, for giving us so much. Our blessings are abundant. And we are blessed beyond our full comprehension at times. Your forgiving spirit overwhelms us. And your love for us is more than we can comprehend. We thank you for your generosity and your love and your care. Help us to be what you have called us to be. Help us to follow your teachings and remain faithful to your landmarks all the days of our lives. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.